Theological education should be affordable. Seminary students should not have to take out tens of thousands of dollars in student loans to train for the ministry. At Covenant Baptist Theological Seminary, our students pay a base of $75 per credit hour and a $375 per semester fee. For more information on how you can receive informed scholarship with Pastoral Heart, check out our website, cbtseminary.org. need to do some groundwork. And uh, I think it's, it's very, very important. The first thing that I want us to look at is just go to the book of Acts. Turn there and then, and then we'll pray. Father, I thank you for this day. And oh dear God, I know I know that you hear us because of Christ. And I pray that you would help us. That we might not be an obstacle, but that we might be um, a useful instrument. In your son's cause. In Jesus name, amen. The first thing I want you to see is that in the book of Acts, it seems to me that we have something of a passing of the baton. Um, So let me just say it this way. When it starts out, it seems to be apostle, apostle, apostle. And then all of a sudden you hear something about an elder congregation and then apostle, apostle, then elder, elder, congregation, congregation, apostle, elder, elder, congregation. And I think that we see something of a passing of the baton. And um, there is a great distinction, a great divide between the apostles of Christ and elders and the congregation. And yet in this present day, this is what we have. The church. And I want to say in this instance, the local church um, and the elders and leaders in that church. And I believe that the epicenter of world missions is the local church. And I believe that the leaders of missions are not necessarily mission experts, but elders. And I think we need to see it that way. And it it's easy to see it that way when we realize that missions is like we have said over and over. It is a biblical church with biblical elders practicing Second Timothy 2 2, entrusting these great truths to other men who in time qualify and are approved as elders and either stay working in the local congregation, may go to another congregation that's already established to assist or may go out church planting domestically or in the the most remote parts of the world. That's missions. That is missions. And uh, we see a real amazing transition by the time we get to Acts 15 in the Council of Jerusalem. I would just draw your attention to verse two, and it says. And when Paul and Barnabas had great um, and when Paul and Barnabas had great dissension and debate with them, the brethren determined that Paul and Barnabas and some others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders. 
concerning the issue. Go down to verse four. When they arrived at Jerusalem, they were received by the church. And the apostles and the elders, and they reported all that God had done with them. And then when you go to verse 22, uh, they're now talking about the letter that is going to be sent. Then it seemed good to the apostles and elders with the whole church to choose men from among them to send to Antioch with Paul and Barnabas. And then in the letter in verse 23, it says, and they sent this letter by them, the apostles and the brethren who are elders. And so I, I want you to see, I, I believe that this is this is extremely important. Now, I want us to continue laying groundwork and let's go to first Timothy. Chapter three. And. Here we see the requirements of an elder and, of course, deacons. And uh, if I had a dime for every time someone told me who was supposedly ministering, either as an evangelist or a missionary or something that told me, well, those qualifications, they don't apply to me. I'm not an elder. Here's what I want you to see. In this text, Paul is describing a mature Christian. He's describing a mature Christian, and he's saying, if you're going to be an elder, you must be a mature Christian. Now, who in their right mind would want anyone to go into any kind of ministry in the church and for the sake of Christ's name, who was not a mature Christian? Now, I want you to see something here that's very important. First of all, in verse one, it is a trustworthy statement. If any man aspires to the office of overseer, it is a fine work he desires to do. He aspires and desires. That's that's a necessary thing. No man by force should be brought into any kind of ministry, but he must aspire to it. But here's the thing. In America, we believe, we have come to believe, not just in the culture, but in the church, that if you want to be anything, you can be it. That's just it. You know, but if someone, you know, aspires to be a brain surgeon, what is required of them? Well, they have to give the greater part of, of their first 40 years, don't they, to qualify to be a brain surgeon and a brain surgeon does a fine work. I don't want to take anything from it, but it's not an eternal work. So it's not enough to want to be in the ministry, to be an elder, to be a minister of Christ in the church, to be a missionary. Desire is good. It's a good thing, but it's not enough because he goes on and he talks about several Qualities And most of you have read through this, I imagine, many, many times. And there's no need for me to read through it because we've got a lot to do. But these are non-negotiable qualifications. Non-negotiable. And in these things, the man must be above reproach. But here's the other thing that I want you to see is that it's not just necessary that he sees that he qualifies 
But the congregation must see that he qualifies. And herein is a great problem. When you have a poor gospel. When you have a superficial gospel, when you do not practice church discipline. You have a congregation that does not have the spiritual wherewithal or the biblical knowledge to determine many times if someone qualifies. You see, here, here's the problem. When the gospel goes wrong, everything goes wrong. Everything goes wrong. And when certain fundamental matters about the church, like church discipline, is just completely disregarded, then, then nothing else really works. You're, you're, you spend the rest of your life in chaos. And that's what we have. We have chaos on the mission field because we have chaos in the church. We have chaos in the church because we have chaos in the pulpit. And particularly with regard to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have men preaching a superficial gospel and they're building their own empires on the bones of unconverted church members. There are kind of two ways to protect. One of them is, first of all, preaching the real gospel, the scandalous one, the demanding one that will keep a lot of people out. The other is among the saints practicing church discipline. We've lost both of those in America. And so if you want to talk about fixing the mission field, you have to fix the church and fix the church. You have to fix the pastors. The congregation, and that's done through again, returning to Sola Scriptura. Returning to Sola Scriptura. Now, with regard to whether a person qualifies enough, look at verse 10. It says these men must also first be tested. The word also there is important, indicating that, well, not only deacons should be tested. But elders and, and, and here's what I want you to see, that doesn't mean that you find a guy and then you call, I don't know, eight or ten other pastors in the area who don't even know them and you have some question and answer session before their ordination. That's not what this means. Not at all. It's, it's they're tested. By the other elders who observe observing their life, because the only way you can know these things about a person is observing their life, the congregation observing their life. And here's what we need to understand. That is extremely. Extremely. Important. Go to five, first Timothy five. Look at verse 22. So we have a person aspires, a person who's tested with regard to these non-negotiable requirements. And then there's a warning. Do not lay hands upon anyone too hastily and thereby share responsibility for the sins of others. Keep yourself free from sin. There is a sense. Uh, in, in the positive, let's go to the positive first. I tell someone that. Um, if I pour my life into a person, there is a real sense and they go out and bear fruit. There is a real sense. That their fruit is mine. 
It comes back to me. Do you see that? So if you train a man, you test the man, he qualifies, you ordain him, and he goes out and has a fruitful ministry. That fruit, in part, belongs to those elders who poured their life into him, that church that poured their life into him. But now negatively, it's the same. He goes out and commits sin. Because of your negligence, you participate in that sin. Or he goes out and commits sin and you do nothing to stop it. You participate in that sin. So it is a very dangerous thing to ordain. And that goes back to this. We have come to a point and sometimes I want to say that it brings me to a point of righteous anger and sometimes anger that's not too righteous. We have come to the point where I, I, I don't think we're grasping the concept of the fear of the Lord. Of how dangerous and deadly this is. Now, probably as I'm using this kind of language, you're thinking that I'm mainly talking about ordaining men who will go out and, and pastor somewhere in the U.S. or something like that. This also applies to missionaries, but even more so. Remember what I said. If a pastor who is not adequate, does not qualify, goes and plants a church among a thousand other strong churches, it will do damage. But more damage is done when you send a missionary to a people group that has no church and he's the first witness of the gospel. And that church is the first witness of Christ's people. And that missionary goes out, he is planting a seed and a root is going to spring up that poisons the people. It doesn't bring life. And listen, I so appreciate all these young people who want to go to the mission field. I love that. I want to encourage that. But what you need to understand is we're dealing in eternal matters here. If my son at 17 or 18 wanted to be a brain surgeon, I would be I would be behind him all the way, but I wouldn't put a scalpel in his hand. I would sacrifice, his mother would sacrifice for his education. We would do everything possible to promote this thing that he wants to do, but we would not put a scalpel in his hand. He would have to qualify. How much more? So I want you to know that don't think when all these young people that are unqualified just run to the mission field. There is more mercy thrown their way than toward the men who should know better. The elders and preachers, pastors that should know better. Now, I want to go on from here and I want to talk about what is a missionary. And this is going to maybe seem strange to many of you, but I've thought it a, a couple of years ago. Well, more than a couple of years ago, I began to think about something. I just happened to hear a bunch of people give their opinion on what was missionary. And they were all uh, well-known people. And I realized they had completely different definitions. Now, you know, the book of Judges, the bane of Judges is everyone did what was right in their own eyes. 
And the missionary endeavor is far greater than anything that was going on in the book of Judges. And as I said last night, we have no right to do that which is right in our own eyes, but we must submit ourselves to Scripture. If, if for no other reason, submit yourself to Scripture for your own, on your own behalf, for your own welfare. I fear that we we're playing marbles with the diamonds of God and we're going it, to it, it's not going to go well. When I look at the church in America, I wonder how much of this, because people never bring this up, it seems, how much of all our malady is simply the judgment of God. The discipline of God. I ask questions sometimes when I'm preaching on missions. You want to go out. But let me ask you a question. Should your gospel that you preach be exported or quarantined? But let's take it further. Your devotional life. Should it be exported or quarantined? Would you want everyone else to have your devotional life? Your piety. Your godliness, your don't be afraid, your separation from the world. Would you want everyone else to have that? Should your godliness be exported or quarantined? Do you see? These are we need to ask ourselves. You know, the, the paintings you'll see sometimes and, and they're very, very dark, it seems um, medieval. Uh, often associated with Roman Catholicism, sometimes with secular philosophy. You'll see a, a priest or a philosopher standing at a window maybe or in a dark room and he's holding up a skull and he's looking at it. What is he doing? He's contemplating eternity. But not just contemplating eternity, he's also contemplating himself in light of eternity. I think Americans, Christians, need to spend less time being so busy just reading the text and going on or reading the text to understand it theologically, but never experiencing the text and being confronted by the text. There's a lot of questions we need to ask ourselves. One of those questions is, what is a missionary? Now, the word missionary comes from the Latin noun missionarius from the Latin verb mitere or mitera. Now, what does it mean? Well, missionarius is the Latin translation of the Greek noun apostolos. And mitera is the Latin translation of the Greek verb apostello. So every time you call someone a missionary, you're calling them an apostle. Because that's what it means. That's what it means. A sent one. But in this case, really an apostle. Now, the term was probably first used, missionarius. They think by the Jesuits in the 16th century who were going out to proselytize in the name of Roman Catholicism. So are missionaries apostles? 
Well, I want us to take a serious consideration of that. I want us to think about what is the definition of a missionary. Now, I'm going to be reading quite a bit because I want to make sure that I'm I'm clear on the issue because it is a dangerous issue, isn't it? In the context of the Roman Greco world, the Greek word apostolos or apostle referred to a messenger or agent sent forth with a message and with the authority of the sender. Now, every time you hear, if you're in a lecture or something, you hear the word, you know, the professor goes, you know, an apostle and immediately goes to the Roman Greek Greco world to define an apostle. But what you need to understand is that in Judaism of Jesus time, they had apostles. The Sanhedrin had apostles, it appears. The larger synagogues had apostles. So I don't believe Jesus was drawing from the Roman Greco world. I believe he was drawing from his own culture. Now, I want to uh, read something from our dear brother, Sam Waldron, and it's in his book to be continued. And it was uh, I was moving down kind of this train of thought, scaring myself a bit because I hadn't heard anybody really talk about it. And then I came across this. It was very helpful. Now, just listen. An apostle is a sent one, both in Hebrew and Greek. The word for an apostle is derived from the verb, which means to send. Among the Jews, however, the word shaliach or sent one had attained a very specific meaning. Ritterbos notes, recent research has shown that the formal structure of the apostolate is derived from the Jewish legal system in which a person may be given the legal power to represent another. The one who has such power of attorney is called a shaliach or apostle. The uniqueness of this relationship is pregnantly expressed by the notion that the shaliach or apostle of a man is as the man himself. And in early rabbinic literature, I found something that was quite amazing to me. And it was this. The rabbis would say this. He who has spoken with shaliach has spoken to the one who sent him. And then I was uh, talking to my dear friend from Tel Aviv, David Zadok, and he said, we still have that today. There are men who go out throughout all the world bringing Jewish people back to Israel with the authority to do so. I thought that quite amazing. Now, in the New Testament, the Greek word apostle also possesses a similar technical meaning. Jesus Christ was his father's apostle, Hebrews Three, one and two. He was his father's apostle. Thus, what Jesus said, his father said, John 14, six through 10. In a similar way, the 12 are his apostles. John 20, 21 to receive Christ's apostle is to receive him. Matthew 10, 40, John 13, 20. Therefore, an apostle was one's legal representative. He possessed to use modern parlance power of attorney for someone else, end quote. That's from uh, Sam Waldron's book. Now, this is very, very helpful, very helpful. Now, I want to continue and I'm going to, like I said, try to stay as close with my notes as I possibly can for now. In its restricted sense, the apostle refers to the twelve who were directly chosen by Christ during his earthly ministry to Matthias and finally to Saul of Tarsus, who became Paul. These men may properly be called 
the apostles of Christ. And the overwhelming evidence in the New Testament demonstrates that this office has most certainly ceased. Make no mistake about it. Why do I say that? The apostles teaching laid the foundation for the church. You can only lay that foundation one time. Ephesians 2.20. No man outside the sphere of the original apostles meets the requirement of a genuine apostle as set forth in the scriptures. 2 Corinthians 12.12. The apostle Paul saw himself as the last to be called. 1 Corinthians 15.8. Now, so those are the apostles of Christ and that ministry has ceased. But there's another way in the New Testament that the word apostle is used. The apostles of the churches. So I want to read for you in a broader sense, the term apostle is also used in the New Testament to describe those men who were sent out by the churches as their official representatives, messengers, envoys, emissaries, delegates or laborers for the expansion and edification of the church on the mission field. Second Corinthians 8.23, Paul refers to certain brethren as messengers or apostolos of the church who had been sent out under the authority of the churches to collect the offering for the saints in Jerusalem. They were sent ones. In Philippians 2.25, Paul refers to Epaphroditus as the messenger or apostle of the church in Philippi who was sent by the church to minister to Paul's needs. Do you see that? Now let's draw a comparison and a contrast. In light of the text we have surveyed thus far, we may summarize the differences between the two groups of apostles. I believe Dr. Waldron calls them apostles with a big A and apostles with a little a maybe. The apostles of Christ were appointed and sent out under the direct authority of Christ himself to take the inspired revelation given to them to the ends of the earth. And this ministry has ceased. The apostles are messengers of the churches. Now listen very carefully. Were appointed and sent out under the authority of the local church or a collection of churches to carry out a specific task designated or delegated by the church. In the context of the Great Commission, it would denote one who is sent out by the church to take the faith, which was once for all handed down to the saints, to the ends of the earth. This ministry will continue until the second coming of our Lord. Now. In this, we, we don't see. Lone wolf ministries. We don't see people just making a decision and going somewhere. We don't see someone even called to go to the mission field, having a five minute chat with their pastor so that he'll sign a paper to turn it over to a mission agency so that they can go out. That's not what we see here. We see something very structured, very formal, um, very solemn. Very solemn. But for my reformed brethren, not so solemn that we don't do it. (laughs) 
What do we see? We see a church with biblical elders and a biblical congregation. And we see 2 Timothy 2.2. If you're not familiar with that passage, let's just turn there real quick so that you can see 2 Timothy 2.2. The things which you have heard from me in the presence of many witnesses, entrust these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Now, in the 70s and 80s, there was this massive growth of personal one-on-one -on -one discipleship. You know, everybody disciple somebody. I'm not against that necessarily. But that this text was used as the proof text of that movement, and that's not what this text is talking about. This is not talking about one-on-one -on -one discipleship between believers. It's talking about elders raising up elder-qualified men. That's very important to understand. And by the way, I think that all the emphasis on personal discipleship, even though it is, it, it's a good thing, I think in the 70s and 80s that came about because of the weakness of the pulpit. Because people were simply not being taught by their pastors who were trained in liberal seminaries. And so what we have here is, let's say that you're a, you're a young person, you've, be, you've been soundly converted. Uh, you, let's say you're, you know, you, you, you decide that you're going to, uh, you're going to serve the Lord. He begins to make it more and more clear to you. What usually happens? You run off to the mission field, maybe with some youth for something mission type thing. Or maybe you just you, you go to seminary. And you get trained in all sorts of church planting and missionary strategies. And then you go off somewhere. Well, I praise God for people who go off. God always uses. He always works with imperfect people in imperfect situations, and I don't want to take anything from that. But if we follow the scriptures, what should be happening? Oh, there's no there's not necessarily a problem with going off to seminary, but here's what I need you to see in the context of the local church. When people, the elders begin to recognize this person has a calling on their life and they seem like they're going to go to the mission field, they need to take that person as their own. And not let them go. I was on a panel one time with a bunch of leaders and one of them said, uh, a seminary representative, he said, now, when you pastors uh, give your boys to to us, I raised my hand, I said. No one's supposed to give their boys to you. They're not. Elders don't give their boys to seminaries. Seminaries can be called in to help the elders in the training, but elders, you don't relinquish that. You're calling that young man. You're, if he's in a faraway place, you're making sure that he's under the watch care of another uh, confessional Baptist church. You're, you're, you're in his life. My son went to masters to study. I didn't give my boy to them. He's still my boy. He'll always be my boy and I'll be calling him all the time and I'm responsible for him until the end of days. Do you see that? And churches have to realize this. You don't take a minister and throw him somewhere else to somebody else to be trained. Because what happens is, and it's not the seminary's fault, the pastors are assuming that the seminaries are watching over his piety and his godliness, but they were never called to do so. And the seminary is assuming that the church is watching over his piety and godliness and they're not doing it. 
So you see, a person should be trained. A person should study theology. They should they should study hermeneutics. They should study the languages. They should study even about missions and definitely church history. But they are watched over by the local church and its elders, and they are eventually tested and proven worthy and sent out and supervised and watched by that congregation and those elders. It's extremely important we understand this. Extremely important. Now, here's the question. Should we use the term apostle rather than missionary? Well, I found out that some of the old Baptists and some of the old Presbyterians actually did. But here's what I discovered. I will, for example, be reading John Gill. And he will use language that sometimes scares me about the Holy Spirit. He talks freely, so freely about the Holy Spirit. And he could use the word apostle, so could Spurgeon. Do you know why? Because they didn't have the problem we have today. We have to be so careful with our language because it can be misconstrued. So should we use the word apostle? I don't think so. And for these reasons, the word apostle is so identified with their 12, with the 12 and their unique ministry that our use of the term would result in misunderstanding and the need to constantly explain ourselves. Secondly, we should take the greatest precaution with our use of the term apostle so as not to affirm in any way the claims of the many false apostles who are wrecking havoc on the contemporary church. Third, the term of missionary is adequate, but I have to tell you I prefer the term messenger or emissary of the church because it sets forth the biblical relationship which should exist between the missionary and the church or the churches that send him. Now, I want to bring out another point before we we take a look at six characteristics of a missionary. Remember how apostle is defined and the Hebrew shaliach, how it is defined. It is that. You. When you speak. When an apostle of Christ spoke. They were representing Christ and his doctrine, and they could not deviate from it. So when the apostle of the church, the missionary goes out and speaks, he's speaking in agreement with the church that sent him, and he is representing the church that sent him. Do you see that? It's no idea of someone going out and saying, okay, I'm in a I'm in an old kind of stuffy church with a confession that no one understands. I'm going to go out and start a church for young people. No, it's when you go out under the authority of the elders and the church that sent you, it is to replicate the same doctrine and the same praxis. You've come to agree with. Do you see? Very, very important. Now. I want to go to second. Uh, 
Corinthians chapter 8, verse 16. Now, this has to do with the collection of um, for the saints in Jerusalem. But there is so much great truth in this text. He says, but thanks be to God who put the same earnestness on your behalf in the heart of Titus, for he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he has gone to you of his own accord. We have sent along with him the brother whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches. And not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches to travel with us in this gracious work, which is being administered by us for the glory of the Lord himself and to show our readiness. Taking precaution so that no one will discredit us in the administration of this generous gift. For we have regard for what is honorable, not only in the sight of the Lord, but also in the sight of men. We have sent with them our brother, whom we have often tested and found diligent in many things, but now even more diligent because of his great confidence in you. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brethren, they are messengers or apostles of the churches a glory to Christ. Now, first of all, I want you to see in verse 16 and 17 that the missionary has an inward call from God. In 16, but thanks be to God who put the same earnestness, urgency, figuratively desire, earnestness, a willingness on your behalf in the heart of Titus. God did this. Yes, it's subjective. Yes, it is. But God did it. My children, when, as, as they've gotten older, they say, Dad, how do I know what I should do? I say, well, the first question you should ask yourself in the context of Scripture is, what do you want to do? What is your desire? I remember when I was in Peru, it was a time where the Sendero Luminoso, there was a there was a war. People were being killed, bombs everywhere. It was horrific. It was dangerous. It was dirty. It was nasty. It was horrible. I wanted to be there. I wanted to be there. And years later, when I was running a mule train up in the high jungle, a thing I loved to do, just dropping off Bibles in villages and preaching with horses and everything else, that's where I belong. I looked across the valley one day and said, I don't want to do this anymore. I want to go start heart cry. God puts desires in our heart. God gives us an earnestness. I've seen it over the years, almost four decades. A young man, all of a sudden, he's from some farm in the Midwest and all he can think about is Nepal. It's all he can think about. What's happened? God has put an earnestness in his heart. It is supernatural. It is spiritual. But it's real. Now, the next thing I want you to see, not only an inward call from God, but there is a voluntary acceptance of the call for he not only accepted our appeal, but being himself very earnest, he has gone to you of his own accord. Paul says it twice. He accepted the appeal. He went of his own accord. There, there is one area in Asia where 
I've run into people. And some of my friends also have run into different people. From a certain country. And you say, so you're a missionary here. Yes. How did you get here? Well, our pastor told us we needed to come here. And that's the only reason they're there, because the pastors told them there was a need and they should go there. That's not missions. That's coercion. That's coercion. God puts the desire in the heart. And the person should voluntarily desire, be willing to go. The pastors do have a definite role. It's a role of testing and affirming. But never forget, it is a real and personal call. And there's a voluntary acceptance of the call. Now look in verse 18. We have sent along with him the brother whose fame in the things of the gospel has spread through all the churches. Notoriety in their knowledge of the gospel. I was at a huge missions conference many, many years ago, and it was one of the it's kind of what made me decide not coming back. I watched as preacher after preacher, aged preacher, elder preacher stood up there and just pleaded with 18 year olds just to go to the field. And they would come to me after the sermon and I would say, do not go to the field. Do not go to the field. And they go, but why? The world is dying. And I say, okay. Propitiation. What? Define for me propitiation. Substitutionary atonement. Define that for me. Um, explain to me church discipline as it's laid out for us by our Lord and the Apostle Paul. Tell me the qualifications of an elder. What are the biblical responsibilities of an elder? And I'd say, young people, I'm not trying to hurt you. I want you to go to the field. Oh, that exponentially more of you would go to the field. But not this way. Not this way. Being appointed a missionary is not a right. It's a privilege. It's a calling and a privilege. So we see here notoriety in the gospel. And then look in verse 22. We have sent with them our brother whom we have often tested and found diligent. The same Greek verb, dokimazo, that we find in the testing of deacons and elders in 1 Timothy Chapter three. Tested. The word was used to the assaying or testing of metals to see their purity. Testing a man to see if he is above reproach in the non-negotiable qualifications that Paul sets forth. Then in verse 19, look at verse 19. He says, and not only this, but he has also been appointed by the churches appointed by the churches. The word literally means to vote by raising the hand. It is also used as with regard to choosing or ordaining. They were sent out by the churches 
The churches approved of them. They heard the call, the need in Corinth. They heard it. God put an earnestness in their heart. They desired to go and to go voluntarily. They were men who were tested. They were tested men. And after being tested, they were appointed by the churches. And look what it says. Verse 23. As for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brethren, they are messengers of the churches. They've gone out. Tested by the churches. Well, let's go back even farther. Trained. Nurtured by the churches. Tested by the churches. Appointed by the churches. And they represented the church. When Paul says, I believe when Paul talks about being an ambassador of Christ, I believe that applies to us only in a very limited manner. I believe that he's using the word ambassador in the same way he would use apostle of Christ. But it does apply to us. We do, in a sense, represent Christ and we represent uh, his kingdom. Um, do you have any idea how much trouble a rogue ambassador would get into? Can you imagine? He is sent out by a president, a king. He's an ambassador and he is informed. He is sent out. The king doesn't send him out and go, hey, figure this out. The king, they already figure it out. The ambassador is going to represent exactly what was figured out. And this is so important for you to understand. This relationship between the missionary and the church is is intimate. Because you send that missionary out, you should be caring for them, loving them. Having compassion for them, praying for them, supporting them. But the relationship is also official. That missionary is representing the church in doctrine and praxis. He's not doing something new, although some things might, may need to be adjusted because of culture, but in doctrine and practice, he's doing nothing new. Now, it also says here in verse 23, as for Titus, he is my partner and fellow worker among you. As for our brethren, they are messengers of the churches and he says they are a glory to Christ, literally a glory of Christ. It means either that they were a credit to Christ. Or that also they reflected Christ's glorious character. They were men who could not only represent the church, but they represented Christ. They were a credit to him. They reflected him. Now, I want to end by saying something I think is very, very important. Um, and again, I'm going to read a big part of it. What kind of missionaries are to make up not all our missionary force, 
but the great bulk of our missionary force? I think the answer is found in the book of Ephesians. In chapter four, verse 11, he says, and he gave some as apostles and some as prophets and some as evangelists and some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the son of God to a mature man, to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. It's already been discussed here that the apostles and prophets laid the foundation of the church. And that that uh, that office has those offices have ceased to exist. Now, when I've said that, some of my. Uh, my friends, brethren, have said that's what's wrong with you guys. You don't have a full orbed ministry. You don't have apostles and prophets. I say, yes, we do. They go, no, you don't I say, yes, we do. We really do. But there's a difference. We have it universally. Every time. A man of God. Correctly expounds the scriptures. We have our apostles and prophets. We have their teaching and it's universal and it's always there even at four in the morning when you can't sleep we have apostles and prophets everywhere so so let's look at evangelists pastors and teachers I believe with in with all my heart that the biggest problem in the church today and the biggest problem in missions is that evangelists, pastors, and teachers do not represent the bulk of our missionary force. We have come to a point where anyone who goes overseas for anything, whether it's to wear a clown suit and juggle balls or paint a building, is called a missionary. My dear friend, when we look in the book of Acts, the disciples multiplied when the word increased. When we look here in Ephesians, what do we see? It's talking in Ephesians, especially in verses 12 through 14. It's talking about the building up of the church. And he tells us, you know, this is just like the Lord's prayer in a way. They asked the Lord, how do we pray? And he told us how to pray. I mean, he answered the question and hardly anyone prays that way. It's the same here. People are looking for all these different pragmatic solutions to the problem on the mission field. The mission field is weak. The churches are weak. There's no churches at all. Anywhere you find the church of Jesus Christ immature, weak, or non-existent, it's because there is a lack of biblical evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Anywhere you want to strengthen the church, you need biblical evangelists, pastors and teachers. And the bulk of all our missionary force should be, should be 
evangelists, pastors, and teachers. It's really not that complicated. As my friend David Miller says, it's not rocket surgery. There it is. There it is. It's right in front of us. What do we need to do? And you say, well, what about mercy ministries and and all these types of things? Wonderful, wonderful. But all ministries that go out to the mission field have a singular purpose. That in the end, a biblical, mature, vibrant church has been planted. That's the purpose of missions. I pray that God would give us evangelists. I pray that God would give us pastors. Men, do churches, can churches thrive without pastors? The answer is no, because, well, God said they needed pastors. Men with a pastoral heart, men with pastoral experience. They're often told that they're the kinds of men that should never go to the mission field. But they're the very ones that should go to the mission field, not just evangelists, but men who actually have the heart of a pastor and know how to pastor. And teachers. What kind of teachers? Well, pastors should be teachers and teachers should have a pastoral heart. But there are men who are given towards pastoring and there are men who are giving towards teaching, teaching, teaching. We need teachers and scholars. I know many people don't like that word. Every kind of teacher that can enable men to grow in their knowledge of the scriptures and women to grow in their knowledge of the scriptures, that's what we need. Something that I, I, I cannot tolerate, that I, I believe is a, a A horrific way of looking at people. So some young man goes to and decides he's supposed to be in the ministry here in the United States. We tell him you need to go to seminary, you need to learn the languages, you need to do this and this, and that's all true. But then a man from a primitive tribe in Papua New Guinea is converted. And we look at him and his people and say, well, if they just understand that Jesus loves them and they ask Jesus into their heart and they remember not to fornicate and commit idolatry, it's enough for them. That's pathetic. Every man, woman and child on this planet is created in the image of God, and that means something. And you need to understand. Before the gospel entered into Europe. We were painting our faces blue and pounding each other with clubs and were illiterate monsters. What changed our tribe? It was the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you know what I'm seeing? The West is returning 
to its origin. Idiocy, immorality. While I watch many nations that never have the gospel every year become more and more noble. More and more capable. Brothers, we go into the worst hell hole on the planet. If we stay there long enough and we preach hard enough, people are going to come out of there as children of God. And if we continue with them, they will become magnificent specimens of the power of the gospel. But it all has to do with preaching the word of God in the power of the Holy Spirit. I wanted to give an entire lecture on the day of Pentecost. Because as I say, whenever I go to most conferences and someone chooses the day of Pentecost, the only thing they preach on is what it doesn't mean. But the question is, what does it mean? And it means so much for us today. I will say with my Baptist forefathers, and I have several of them quoted back there if you don't believe me. We need to constantly, constantly, constantly cry out for greater and greater manifestations of the life and the power of the Holy Spirit in our person and in our ministries. I will not allow heresy to rob me of my inheritance. Nothing can be done. There is no life. There is no power apart from the Holy Spirit. Well. I hope that this has been helpful. And I hope that you will go forward. If you've learned something about missions and you realize that someone you know is doing missions wrong, what do you have that you have not received? And if you have received it, why do you boast? Be kind. If I look back on all the errors and wrong things I have done as a young man and up until today, I find great reason to be compassionate on all. Someone came to Dwight L. Moody one time. I think it was two men came to Dwight L. Moody and said that there were these guys out there doing evangelism. And, and it was just they were doing it so wrong and everything. And Dwight L. Moody should stop it. And Dwight L. Moody said, well, you know what? I like the way they're doing evangelism better than the way you're not doing evangelism. It's not just being correct. It's not just being hearers of the word, but doers. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. And I pray, dear God, that you would use your word in the life of your people by your good spirit. Lord, help us and lead us, empower us in Jesus name. Amen. 